Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Now I feel like it's been forever since I've done a new episode. As most of you know, I missed last week's show to attend my grandfather's funeral. So thank you to all those that left messages of support and comfort. You guys are truly amazing. Before we get started this evening, I have a special announcement pertaining to Cryptocrate. We've heard your comments and taken action. Introducing... Cryptic Crate Light, a smaller, more affordable version of our tried-and-true full-size crates. With this additional service, you can expect $40 worth of cryptic goodies, including t-shirts, hats, patches, stickers, buttons, and many more small items, all for the low, low price of $19.99 a month. And that includes free shipping for all customers in the U.S. These bad boys are set to ship out on July 15th, so be sure to order yours today. Simply go to www. .crypticrate.com to sign up now. Alright, I have a fun little show for you guys this evening, so dim those lights and lock that door, because things are about to get spooky. Let's kick things off with a subject near and dear to my heart. The following is Josh's Call from Utah. Hey Derek, it's Josh from Utah again. Um, this time I'm not calling about UFOs, but I love the explanation you gave about my experience. Um, I was catching up on past episodes and I came across one where you and Addie are discussing the different experiences you go having and the man from Pennsylvania talking about a big black cat just really struck home for me as well because I served a two-year volunteer mission to Pennsylvania in that actually area right there um, in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. And I remember going over to someone's house um, for a dinner party that um, everyone was talking about, you know, weird things that were happening to them like they do. And a number of people were talking about large black cats coming into their farms and, you know, doing all sorts of havoc there. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm hearing all this amazing cryptic talk, you know, 2,000 miles away from home, and this, this is awesome. I'm, I'm living it. And not even eight months before that experience, I was in a separate region of Pennsylvania that probably around... 200 miles away, where um, 
We're driving through a mountain canyon. Well, to us in Utah, it was more like a hill canyon, but we saw a mountain lion dead on the side of the road. Now, I, I know what a dead deer looks like. I know a dead cow, horse, everything looks like. It was a dead mountain lion, and as the previous caller had talked about, there's supposed to be no mountain lion in Pennsylvania. And so, I, I'm sure the Pennsylvania Game Commission don't want to freak out people because, you know, mountain lions are kind of very terrifying creatures. But, um, there's definitely something going on there more than they're letting on. But, um, yeah, I felt like I needed to let you know. This has been an awesome podcast. Thank you so much for letting us, you know, experience these amazing stories. Have a fantastic day. Thank you, Josh, for that call. I thought this might be a good time to do a little retelling of my personal encounter regarding these mysterious black cats, an encounter that solidified my interest in cryptozoology forever. Now, I realize I told this story in the very first episode of this show, but I thought I'd do something interesting. I'm going to retell this story without going back and listening to the version I left nearly two and a half years ago. So let's consider this a bit of an experiment to see how much my memory has changed since the first telling. So here it goes. When I was probably 10 to 12 years old, my brothers, myself, and my good friend Kenny decided to start exploring the woods behind our parents' house. My dad owned a 13-acre wooded lot, but we pretty much had free reign over 300 acres in that direction, and we took full advantage of it. Well, this particular day, we decided to pack a lunch and do some exploring. A trip that took us to a large rock, at least large when I was small, that was pushed to the side of a gas line right-of-way. While we sat there eating our PB&J, we heard a crashing on the hillside above us. That's when we looked to see a huge black cat racing through the trees headed for the pipeline. We stared in awe for what felt like minutes, then suddenly ran to the pipeline in hopes of seeing it more clearly in that treeless stretch of land. Unfortunately, it was too fast, and we weren't able to see it again. The creature was massive. Its body itself was probably three to four feet long. It was jet black and shiny. It was low to the ground, not like a badger, but much lower than, say, a bear, which coincidentally we have, or at least had, in that area at the time. It made no noise other than the crashing of the branches and the leaves as it bolted for cover. Later that day, we told my dad what we had seen, and that's when he admitted that he saw the same thing only days prior, but for some reason opted not to share that information with us. Although looking back, I'm not sure why he would allow us to venture into the woods knowing something like that was down there. But it's entirely possible he wasn't aware that we were walking down there as well. So there's the story, at least... That's how I remember it going down. I've actually included a photo of the sighting location in tonight's show notes, so you can get an idea of the space and see just how close we were to the actual creature. Now, circling back to Josh's call, I think it's important to drive this point home. If you happen to see something strange laying dead along the road, please stop and take a photo of it. Especially if that something is a dead mountain lion in a state they're said to no longer reside in. Of course, Josh's run-in with the dead creature could have occurred before we started carrying cameras around in our pockets, so it's possible that taking a photo wasn't an option in this particular case. But at any rate, thank you, Josh, for the call. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. 
I love me some black cat sightings. Now our next story takes us to the bluegrass state. The following is Dylan's call from Kentucky. Hi, this is Dylan. Um, I've called before, um, but I wanted to tell one um, that actually happened in the last year. I used to work for a company, for a security company um, in Kentucky. The contract we was taken care of was a retail mall, and um, one of the spaces had some special activity going on, and uh, we didn't know exactly what was um, taking place. Our job was, at the end of the night after the mall closed, is to walk down a corridor. And if you don't know what a corridor is, it's an um, access point or emergency point um, in case of a fire or something. And it, they also give you access to um, the back doors of the stores that's in the mall. Well, there's a store in particular that um, we would hear sounds of people walking, uh, people talking in there. Uh, we even heard a child laugh. It was just really strange. But one night in particular, um, I was walking down the corridor and to go lock it up, and a noise um, caught my attention to the right, right where that store was. And uh, sound like a little child's voice, um, a little bit of laughter. So I knocked on the door and asked if anybody was in there. Nobody responded. Um, I walked to the front of the store, back into the mall, and uh, shined my flashlight and looked in, and there was uh, nobody in there. So I thought that was odd, and I just, you know, discarded it. Well, I didn't tell anything anybody about it during that time because I didn't want people to think that I was crazy. Um, but there's another guard, um, correctional or security officer, that was um, working the next night. He had to walk up by himself. Well, he walked down that hallway and he heard a sound, a child laugh, and like it was running. It scared him, but he never mentioned it. Well, we got a new guy that started and we trained him and everything, and he was to lock up one night. And he walked down the same corridor, and he heard the same thing. Well, he didn't, you know, keep it quiet like uh, me and the other guy did. Um, he actually asked me, he's like, so I was walking up last night, and I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever heard anything in that corridor. And I was like, yeah, I've, I've heard things. And um, the other guy that experienced, he was in the room too, and he was like, I've heard the exact same thing. Um, the store used to be a Radio Shack at one point in time. It's a different store now. I don't want to give that detail, but um, it, it was just strange. It, it's only happened maybe four or five times. I've actually moved to a different job now, so I'm not going to work there, but um, the buddies that I used to know that works there, they say that it's still going on. So that was awful strange to to experience that, but I wanted to share that. And I appreciate your time. I hope this maybe entertains somebody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Dylan. 
Speaking of Kentucky, this is official. I will have a booth at the upcoming Crypticon in Frankfort, Kentucky, September 8th and 9th. The booth will be primarily focused on Crypticrate, but I'll be there with a bit of Monsters Among Us swag and looking to swap some stories. So if you're attending, be sure to stop by and say hello. Now, in regards to the strange experience Dylan and his co-workers had, I think it's important to take a look at the location's history. It's not all that uncommon for malls to be built over old farmlands. Our local mall growing up sat directly over a couple of previous homesteads. You may also think back to the Twin Pines Mall from the Back to the Future movie, so-called because of the dual pine trees that once graced the farm that was in that location. So it's entirely possible that the land had a history before the current mall was built, and if that was the case, it's not a stretch to believe that someone may have died in or around that home. Perhaps a giggly child. My other thought was that a janitor or night employee brought his or her child to work, and that kid simply went exploring. And if he or she saw the security guard, they may be reluctant to yell out when asked if anyone was there, you know, thinking they may be in trouble. This could also explain why this only occurred a few times. Perhaps that janitor was finally able to nail down a babysitter. Thank you for the great call, Dylan. I can only imagine how creepy it would have been to hear that sort of laughter in a darkened, empty shopping mall. Our next story comes to us in written form. This is Revolk's story via the state of Illinois. Hola. My alias is Revolk, and I live in Illinois, about 15 miles from downtown Chicago. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of months now, and I love it. I wasn't sure if I would post anything from my experiences with the paranormal, but after listening to your podcast from Season 4, Episode 12, I had to do it. The similarities from Fernando in Texas's UFO sighting and mine are incredibly similar. So much so that when I was listening to it, the hair on my back stood up, and I almost had to park on the side of the road since I was driving at the moment. My encounter happened in late December of 2003 or 2004 in the state of Durango, Mexico. I was going home from a party about 3 or 4 in the morning. My cousin Rudolph was with me, but he was asleep as soon as we got inside my truck. The road was very dark. There were no street lights or any lights other than that coming from my headlights. We were driving about 15 minutes when I suddenly saw a circular light about 70 to 80 yards ahead of me. It looked like a motorcycle or a big headlight coming toward us very slowly. I slowed down thinking it was another vehicle, and since the roads are very narrow in that particular area, I didn't want to crash or cause any type of accident. The closer I got, the more I realized the light was not attached to any vehicle, and in fact was moving the opposite way, now that I was about 40 yards from it. Then, suddenly, it became very slow, like a golf ball, then disappeared when I drove past a curve in the road. I was astonished and made a very sudden stop trying to figure out what exactly I'd witnessed. My cousin woke up abruptly and confused, and he asked me why I stopped. I told him what happened, word by word, and he gave me a look that I'll never forget. A look between amazed and scared. Then he told me in a very serious voice that people from the town of Galena, the town where we were coming from, saw those lights often, and that they even try to organize groups to somehow catch it, or at least watch where it goes or where it hides, but they were never able to do it. This story might even fall into the category of hometown legends, since this story is very popular around that area. Since this was only the second or third time I'd been to Mexico, I'd never heard of those lights before my encounter. I kept going back many years, but never saw that light again. 
and I drove that area at night many, many times. I hope you like the story, and I hope you can use it in your podcast. Keep up the great work you do, and I'll be writing up more of my experiences soon. And thank you. Well, thank you, Revolk. It's no secret that Mexico is a hotbed for UFO activity. All you have to do is search Mexico UFO on YouTube, and you'll find yourself in a sea of shaky videos of lights, objects, and even hovering humanoids. But I have to be honest here. This sounds more like a spook light or ghost light than it does a UFO. I've discussed this seemingly natural phenomenon at length on several episodes, so I won't go into it again here. But with the reliability of the activity and the description of the light itself, I would jump to the conclusion that this is perhaps something more, or at the very least, different than the classic UFO. Although, it did seem to be flying, and it was unidentified. So I suppose, by definition, it should be still classified as an unidentified flying object. Thanks again, Revoke, for the story. Perhaps we can revisit this one in an upcoming Hometown Legends segment. Before I play our next call, I think it's important to cover the practice of dowsing. So here's a brief definition on the ancient practice. Dowsing is a technique for searching for underground water, minerals, or anything invisible by observing the motion of a pointer, or the changes in direction by a pendulum, supposedly in response to unseen influences. The pointers, traditionally, are a forked stick or sometimes bent wires. Now, armed with that information, our next segment takes us deep under the state of Arizona. The following is Annie's Call. Hey, Derek. This is Annie from Arizona again. Um, calling back with a curious encounter, I believe. Um, just the uh, three days ago, we were out at um, our local or our claim that we have out in the mountains here, just kind of north uh, east of the town that I live in. And uh, my husband is a miner, like a legitimate miner 49 or not, not a miner under the age of 18 miner. And uh, he has quite an interesting mine in this one place. We have a tunnel it goes quite a ways back under the mountain. And although when I first started going out there, it was kind of intimidating and mildly scary. Um, I've become more fascinated with um, mines and how they work. And so now it's more um, fun and curious to me than it is scary. So usually when I go out, he's he goes underground and I've taken up using dowsing rods to uh, locate lost cemeteries in that area because there are so, so many of them. Um, and I just happened to be underground with him this particular day. Um, we were doing, I can't remember, we were doing some work on a wall or painting letters for whatever reason. And um, he was busy doing his thing. And so I chucked off down a little tunnel that I like to visit. I call it the wet tunnel because there's usually water in it. Um, not a mud, not a lot, just enough to keep your shoes muddy. And it's neat, neat to go down there because the track that the ore carts used to run on is still buried there. And because of the water, you can actually see the the uh, the um, ore cart tracks. And I I like that part. That history is intriguing to me. So I went all the way to the back of the tunnel where there was a collapse a long, long time ago. Um, and I like to climb up to the top of that because there's some amethyst in the walls back there. And 
I've done this, you know, probably 40 times. I know the tunnel. I know the sounds. I've been in and out that little hole a million times. And I'm climbing up to get to the top of um, this large pile of rock and dirt. And in my ear, interestingly enough, I hear the word hello, which kind of got my attention. It didn't scare me more than it just kind of, kind of, made me whip my head around and look to see if maybe someone was behind me. Um, my husband is a uh, wounded warrior, so he's not nearly as quick as I am. Um, so I knew it wasn't wasn't him, so I was wondering if maybe there was someone else in the tunnel with us that probably shouldn't be there. Of course, I turn around. There's no one below me. And I thought, well, that's just weird. Got to the top of the um, pile, and I found my little amethyst nook, and I'm kind of chipping away at it. And... I got the bright idea to pull out my dowsing rods. Um, I don't use them in any sort of what I would call an inappropriate spiritual way at all. Um, I simply use them for fact-finding. But in this case, I thought I'd give it a little bit of a go to see if whatever was there, if anything was there, perhaps may need some assistance. So I sat down took out my rods, had my flashlight out. Um, it's very dark in there without your light. Obviously, there's no light whatsoever. Um, a little bit humid. And if there's any sound at all, you hear it. A stone is an incredible... Um, it, 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 if there's one little sound, it can conduct it for a very long time. It's amazing how that happens. So I got comfy, pulled out my rods, and I start with my basic questions. Um, you know, um, if there's if there's someone in here that said hello to me, will you please open my rods? Well, not even a split second later, I got a really strong response, and the wide, rods just swung wide open. Um, and so I asked, um, if you need help, please close the rods. Then it was interesting because they didn't close. They, uh, they stayed open, and... Um, so as I'm sitting there trying to figure out what other question I want to ask, uh, the left rod kept pulling strongly over toward the wall of the cave, or the yeah, tunnel that was right on my left. I was almost leaning up against it. Not a very big room in there. And so when I go to reset my rods and ask another question, that rod would yank right back to the wall again. Um, this happened three or four times. And so I asked my rods if... Um, the person that was there needed help. Um, the tugging continued toward the left side of the tunnel. And so I decided to ask if um, you passed away in a mining accident. Uh, if you did, please cross the rods. And my rods just automatically crossed really quick. I mean, it was, you know, it was just like a quarter of a second. And they just zoom went right together. Um, and I figured, well, okay, I'm onto something here, which many people did die, unfortunately, especially in that area, um, whether accidental or intentional um, type accident in that area. So I thought I would be kind of brave and ask a name. And finding names through dowsing can be a bit of a challenge because generally you have to spell. Um, and if you don't have a lot of practice under your belt, which I don't, it can be really frustrating and oftentimes end up with no one, less, more questions than you had when you started. 
So I thought I would ask, okay, if your name starts with A, please cross the rods. Well, I pulled the rods up. I kind of reset them. I asked, uh, um, I'm going to ask your name. And as soon as that word left my lips, I heard in my ear again the name Ortega, which I know is a classic Hispanic um, name. But, I mean, there's I don't know anyone by the last name of Ortega. Um, I don't know anyone even remotely in my social circles that has the name Ortega. Um, so I thought that was interesting, and I quite honestly, I just left it there. Um, I thanked the individual for his time and, um, you know, packed up my rods and headed out the cave to try to find my husband because at this point I felt a little bit beyond my comfort zone. So it was really cool, and, you know, I, I did feel like I at least maybe hopefully provided a little bit of comfort in just acknowledging that this individual was there and, and they did lose their, their life mining. Um, these people had a very, very hard life. So uh, I thank you for your time. I do actually, I have recalled another wonderful uh, series of, of incidents I had as a young child that I will call back with um, and share on your show. Derek, I absolutely love what you do and I appreciate it so much. And thank you for giving us all a place to share these wonderful stories. So have a good one. Bye. Thank you, Annie. Dowsing is a funny thing. Despite thousands claiming otherwise, dowsing is not scientifically proven to be effective. Instead, it's considered a pseudoscience. I have very little experience with the practice, but I do have this short anecdotal story. When my parents were building their house in the early 80s, they called in a friend who practiced dowsing to find a good place to drill a water well. Surprisingly, the well diggers hit water in that area. But the well was so poor that until city water finally ran to the rural area, they would consistently run out of water due to the well's poor performance. So take that at face value. The other thought I had concerning Annie's story is that we should be able to look up the history of that mine. Even in the Wild West, deaths were recorded and often included in early newspapers from the area. So in theory, we should be able to look up if someone named Ortega died in this particular mine. That is, if Annie is willing to share the name and or location. But if she and her husband are anything like the prospectors I know, mom will be the word on that. Thanks again, Annie, for the call. Being in the mine is terrifying in itself, without the help of disembodied voices. Okay, a little inside baseball here, and a tip for anyone emailing the show. The show is getting bigger, and thus I'm receiving a lot more calls. Which is awesome, but it does make it difficult to pull out emails that are not submissions. So if you're emailing the show with a suggestion or just saying hi, please make sure to use the word contact in the subject line. That way when I see the word, I know that this is not a submission and I should open it right away. Otherwise, it sometimes takes me weeks to get caught up on all the newest stories. So I said all that to set this up. Listener Jenny emailed me over a month ago, but I mistakenly missed the email assuming it was a submission. Jenny wrote in to share a video that she thought helped explain a call from Season 4, Episode 14, in which caller Will described a huge, flying snake-like creature in the nighttime sky. Here is a very brief portion of that call to jog your memory. Hey there. My name's Will, and I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. I had a weird experience a couple years ago. Me and uh, my brother and a couple friends were going to go watch the Perseids meteor shower as we were 
about to go load up the truck, I noticed, I thought it was a shooting star, which is what we were going to see. So I pointed and said, look guys, there's the first one of the night. It wasn't a star. It was really strange. Don't really know how to explain it. It was like a vertically undulating snake. You could see the sky behind it, the stars. But it flew from the southeast to the northwest, just over my house. Don't know how to explain it. Don't know what it was. Thought it was really strange and wondering if maybe there's anything else like that out there. Now Jenny forwarded the following clip about astronaut Story Musgrave's encounter. Dr. Story Musgrave is a veteran of five American shuttle missions who has seen and photographed several unidentified flying objects in space. Dr. Musgrave does not believe they are craft from another planet. On two of my missions, and I still don't have an answer, um, I have seen a, a snake out there, six, seven, eight feet long. It is rubbery because it has internal waves in it, and it follows you for a rather long period of time. The more you fly in space, the more you see an incredible amount of things out there, and that sort of brings to you a, really a certainty. That, uh, that other living creatures are out there. Some are incredibly primitive, more primitive than us. Some just, uh, just proteins coming together, amino acids, and some just single cellular organisms. And other civilizations have been around for a million years that are doing unimaginable kinds of things. Obviously, this does not solve anything, but it does bridge an important gap. Will's story may have sound far-fetched, but with a highly trained astronaut seeing something very similar, we're now forced to look at this encounter in a different light. Thank you, Jenny, for sending that information along. And be sure to check out the video in tonight's show notes to see images of the thing Musgrave describes. All right, I have a couple stories left to share right after these messages. Just because the stories are pouring in does not mean I no longer need them. Keep the show rolling along and submit yours today. Simply call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-NIGHT. 6444, or hit the Report Your Sightings tab at monstersamonguspodcast.com. Thank you to all those that have or will submit. Without you guys, the show wouldn't be what it is today. Be sure to rate and review the show on your Apple Podcast app. If you happen to listen on an app that does not allow reviews, either submit one via iTunes or just share the show on your favorite social media site. Either way, a huge thank you to all those that have already done so. I have new decals and t-shirts ordered. With a little luck, I'll have them in next week and up in the shop. I even included a new decal design for those that aren't fans of the first one. So, be on the lookout for that. I'd like to thank Jenny A. for her generous donation. You can help support the show like Jenny by visiting the Donate tab on the website, or you can sign up to be a Patreon supporter. All supporters that pledge $4 or more a month will be given access to all the bonus episodes and videos that I put out each month. I'm still behind on the videos due mostly to an issue with my iPhone. I shot two 30-minute videos on the phone, and for some reason, I cannot seem to get them off to edit them. So if anyone out there knows of a trick to pull these bad boys off the phone, I'd certainly appreciate it. Thus far, nothing I've tried has worked. And lastly, my dad had minor surgery today. He's fine and resting at home but I just wanted to say, get better soon, Dad. Okay, with all that out of the way, our next story is another written submission. 
The following is Mark's story. Hi, Derek. I love the show. My story takes place in the summer of 2000 when I was 17. I live in the Chicago area now, but grew up on a farm a couple miles south of Decatur, Illinois. I went to a school district that was made up of the southwest corner of the county, so my friends lived all over. Going to hang out with my friends was often a 10 or 15 mile drive. My friends and I would usually meet at our friend Jared's house, which was a mile west of Macon. On this particular night, we didn't have anything to do, so we drove around. Gas at the time was probably a little over a dollar. We were headed toward Blue Mount on Cossack Road, somewhere between Baker Road and Archery Club Road. I was driving my 1992 Chevy Blazer. Jared was in the front passenger seat, and my other friend Alex was in the back. I don't recall which side. This was either after 9 p.m. or at a time of the summer when the sun goes down before then, as I remember it being completely dark out. I don't remember having my high beams on, but they might have been. Nor do I recall the light of the moon being especially bright this night. As we were driving, I saw a large, feathered wing go by north of the road over the fields. I didn't say anything, but then Jared said, Did anyone else see that? I replied with, The giant bird? And he said, Yeah. I did a quick three-point turnaround and headed the way we came to see if we can catch up to it. We couldn't find it. Alex didn't see it, but given where it was, and him being in a back seat, that didn't surprise me. Three things have always stuck out to me about what I saw. The first being the movement of the wing. It was slow as if the wing was enormous, and it took quite a bit of time for the entire motion of the flapping to occur. Secondly, with the limited amount of light available, I only saw a portion of the right wing and didn't see the head or torso at all. Finally, the length from the front of the wing to the back of the wing was at least four feet. Everyone in the car that night grew up in the country. As I mentioned, I grew up on a farm and we had about a five-acre pond. Growing up, my brothers and I would always be out exploring with our BB guns, and I've seen turkey vultures, hawks, falcons, eagles, geese, all in the wild, and none are near big enough to account for what I saw that night. I've always just thought of it as a Thunderbird sighting, given that there is a history of sightings in central Illinois. Thanks for sharing my story. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Mark. When it comes to these big bird stories, I'm at a bit of a loss. I can't help but feel that I've fallen victim to this myself. The fact that it's near impossible to judge sizes of a flying bird, especially when you can't identify the species. That said, I do find it interesting that this encounter took place near where present-day Mothman sightings are reported nearly weekly. Of course, there doesn't seem to be any immediate connection between the two, but the coincidence is too great not to at least mention. So thank you again for taking the time to share this story. If this episode has taught us anything, it's that everyone needs to go out and buy a dash camera today. Alright, now for our final story of the evening. The following was submitted by Josh in Colorado. Hi Derek, this is Josh from Fort Collins, Colorado, and I've got a pretty weird story that my dad uh, had told our family one night when he was uh, coming, he'd come back from the cabin, and he was kind of, I've never really seen my dad, you know, shaken up, and I don't think shaken up is, is the right word, because he wasn't, you know, freaked out, he just, he just didn't know what was happening, uh, I guess. But this must have been, uh, I'd say, boy, 2012, I want to say. And uh, it was uh, about mid, 
mid-August, I would say, and, and it was it was raining really hard. He said he was coming back down from the mountains, and he was, you know, he, he's that kind of guy. He likes to pick up hitchhikers because a lot of times there'll be, you know, hikers that will want to hitch a ride back up once they've hiked back down because they do, you know, different routes and things. And so he saw this, this uh, gentleman in a full frontier, you know, trapper getup. I mean, it was, you know, furs and all. It just, you look like one of those reenact, uh, you know, those actors do the reenactments and stuff. And, you know, he didn't really think anything of it. It was pouring down rain, I mean, torrents of rain. And, you know, obviously my dad's going to stop because it's raining outside. This poor guy must be, you know, freezing his butt off. And, you know, my dad opens the door and he, you know, he gets in and he says, he doesn't really say much. Um, you know, and, and he's, you know, the, the thing that my dad noticed right away is that the dude wasn't wet. I mean, he said that literally was not a drop of rain on this guy. And he, he didn't really say much. Like I said, he didn't make any conversation. And, uh, and, you know, he's, he just said, drop me off at the top. That's fine. And, you know, he had this really kind of gruff voice. And, uh, and so, you know, he drops this guy off and he's got this, you know, my dad kind of described this weird feeling of like, you know, something just doesn't feel right. And, and when he got out, when the guy got out and he, you know, he walked off into the rain, you know, my dad kind of, it said it almost looked like he just kind of vanished in the rain. But like I said, it was pouring down rain. So we could have easily just, you know, it was kind of dark. Like I said, this is at night, uh, or I didn't say that, but it is, it was at night. Uh, and the guy gets out and he's, you know, my, my dad kind of put his hand down on the seat to see if it was wet and nothing was wet. You know, maybe the furs on, on his, you know, on his, uh, on his jacket and his hat could maybe take the rain and, you know, buffer the rain or whatever. I don't really know how that works, but it just weirded him out, weirded me out. And I've always been, you know, curious as to whether that was kind of a ghost or, you know, just a weird dude in the mountains of Colorado wearing a fur skin uh, coat and cap. I don't really know, but uh, yeah, it was weird. And uh, hey, I recently found the podcast. Uh, it's fantastic. I love spooky stories, especially driving at night. And uh, keep up the great work. And uh, hey, thanks for sharing. Take care. Thanks, Josh. This story left me with two huge questions. If this was in fact an apparition of a frontiersman, where was his rifle? I'm under the assumption that those guys went nowhere without their firearm. If he was carrying it, I assume Josh's dad probably wouldn't have picked him up. And secondly, again, if this was a ghost of a frontiersman, how in the world did he know what a car was or how to hitchhike? I imagine if you showed someone from the early 1800s an automobile, they'd have no idea what it was or how to climb inside and request a ride. But perhaps I'm not giving these pioneers enough credit. Either way, I really enjoyed this call. It's not all that often you hear of a hitchhiking ghost from that far back. Or a frontiersman ghost, for that matter. So thank you again, Josh, for that great call. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Warren Pon Abbott and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. Music from tonight's episode was provided by MyU and Coag Music. Thank you all for listening, and until next week. 
it all starts with an invitation to experience Lexus. To start the ignition, to feel confident, to be connected to everything. It starts as an invitation to drive a Lexus vehicle, but it becomes a dynamic experience. The Invitation to Lexus sales event. Your invitation is always open, but the offers only last through March 31st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more.